Welcome to the Bad Soccer Dad Podcast, where we're asking, why do our attempts to bring out the best in young athletes often bring out the worst in parents? And what would it take to flip the script? Join us each week as we seek to develop better parents, better athletes, and better conversations. Here's your host, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Bad Soccer Dad. My guest today is Dr. Chris Seipel. He's the Senior Fellow for Comparative Religion at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. Chris, thanks so much for making time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be reconnected, old friend. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, Chris, what, what kind of sports did you play growing up? I played soccer and I played JV lacrosse because I like to hit people. <laughs> yeah, soccer, you get to do that. They just card you for it, right? Yeah, well, I was, they called me uh, kamikaze uh, sometimes for the wrong reasons and the right reasons. But yeah, you get to hit people and hopefully it was all fair and legal, but I love soccer. Chris, what role did your parents play in your sports journey as a kid? Well, uh, it was sort of a traumatic experience. I am a introvert. And my mother at age six dropped me off at soccer practice and left me there and uh, <laughs> get past your bad self, little boy. And uh, I played soccer all the way well, through all, all the way through college. And what what position did you play in middle school and high school? Well, I'm the kind of case where uh, I was bigger than most kids. So and faster. And then the older I got. Everybody else got faster and more skilled, and I stayed the same. So I started out at center forward, and then I ended up on the back line in the left fullback, hidden away. And you went to college at Stanford. Talk about your uh, collegiate soccer experience there. Well, it was it was wonderful. You know, I was in high school. I had a great career and was all this and that. Uh, but my soccer coach said to me something. My high school coach said to me something before I went. He says, you know, you may not – play all the way. I thought, you're crazy. There's these other places that wanted me to go there. And I, I was not in Stanford's top 10. Even I, I ended up being a walk-on the only uh, walk-on to make the varsity as a freshman and uh, had a great experience with great guys, but ended up only playing two years uh, because um, a, my grade sucked and uh, B I fell out of love with the sport for a lot of reasons and a lot of great lessons from, from those years. But, I have loved soccer my whole life, and I still coach it. I coach my son and uh, sometimes coach my daughters, and uh, it's just been a blessing all the way around. So, Chris, could you speak to some of those reasons what, that were kind of the tipping point for you after that sophomore year to say, I think it's maybe time to hang this up? Well, one is, and uh, it's just interesting how life works, and as a single male, which is to say I was in, in his 20s, therefore selfish and insecure, <laughs> which is a redundant statement for a single 20-year-old male. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to do, do, do well at school. I was a ROTC scholarship. They were the ones that were paying my way through school. I was going to go on for another nine years in the Marine Corps. And, uh, and, and ROTC was up at Berkeley, which, you know, if you know anything about the Bay Area, Stanford and Cal hate each other. So I had these terrible experiences of failing in school and naval architecture and not understanding engineering, which I'm allergic to, which is what naval stuff is, and then trying to do well at soccer. Then I had a soccer coach who eventually the team would rebel against and get fired because he was not that great a soccer coach. So I wasn't out of my mind, but I lost I frankly lost confidence in myself about playing. And um, 
it's a long story, but the short version is I was playing half a game as a freshman, decided I should honor my ROTC scholarship and go through orientation, which is like a ROTC Nazi boot camp. And I did that and didn't go on the trip up to Pac-10 uh, up in Seattle, and then I didn't play the rest of the season. The coach said, oh, it won't affect you, but then it did. He didn't play me ever again. So the fickleness of a coach who might have been insecure too also affected me. So you put all that together, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And the last thing, let me say this, is because of that, I got into my major of international relations and I didn't play spring soccer fall of 87 and I went to Poland and fell in love with that and went back there in 88 and was there in 89. And I uh, was there when the wall came down, stuff like that. So there's all these other implications that happened because I had the courage to step up and go, hey, this is not for me right now. So there's a lot of things that, that, that come out of those years. That's incredible how it all kind of nets out in the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine uh, doing what I've done with my life and career without the formative experiences I had in Poland. Actually, it was 1988 and then 1989 when the wall came down. And, you know, to see the ideas of freedom and faith and how they play out in the society across time and space from uh, World War II to here, then all before World War II even, um, that's shaped how I think. But ideas count, that freedom counts. And that encouraged me to go on and do things in complicated places to work for uh, liberty of conscience for all faiths and none. And amidst Asian authoritarianism, like China and Vietnam and Laos and Myanmar and Uzbekistan, I couldn't have done that without those experiences, which is the result of failing at soccer. And there you go. Chris, that's that's amazing. Hey, I, a few years ago, probably 10 or 15, I guess, a friend gave me a book called How Soccer Explains the World. And it was this interesting twist on how sports can help us get a clear grasp on globalization. From your perspective, how do, how do sports give us a window into some very complex issues that are unfolding around the world? Well, that's it's a great question. I've seen that book and it's on my shelf and I haven't read it. So I'm assuming I'm going to say everything that is consistent with it. But let me go back to our fifth grade soccer team, uh, which I'm coaching for the third year this year. And I've, I've boiled life's lessons down to three principles, which I think I learned from soccer and what I've seen overseas in terms of understanding the interrelated whole of things. Principle number one, and they repeat it every practice, see the whole, play as a body. You got to see the whole thing and you got to see this. You're an organism. You're not, it's not football. Do your job, stay in your lane. You got to think about the whole and play as a body. Second principle, which builds on that, is uh, create opportunity because you see the whole. Create opportunity, pass and move to space. Space is the key. Let the ball do the work. Number three, uh, stick the D and shoot to score. That's about skills on defense and offense, but it's also about uh, confidence for young soccer players. And it's also, a frankly, a response to, uh, forgive the language, but the wussy factor that I see sometimes among kids who have had the experience of helicopter uh, parents that become, sometimes become uh, uh, steamrolling parents, if you know those phrases and those analogies. Or kids are always get a prize and, and always got to be things moved out of their way. So all they have to do is show up. No, I want you to be good at what you do, but then I want you to make a decision. I want you to execute with excellence. I want you to be ganned off on the bridge if you're playing defense and say, you shall not pass. 
And when it's, you're in front of the net, you don't have to pass to your friend or your whatever just to be a nice guy. If it's for the sake of the team, shoot and put the ball in the net. That's what I want you to do. Go get it. So you put all that together, and it's about teaching pe- young young boys uh, to what character means and what it means to make decisions, and then to see the whole and say, hey, this is just like life. Sometimes it sucks to be you. You're going to get beat. Go get up and help the team. Don't worry about yourself. Do it for the team. Anyway, I'm getting on my soapbox, but you can see how I feel about these things. No strong opinions at all. <laughs> so, so Chris, how are, how are some of those lessons that you've picked up, either from your experience in the military or your experience in sports, been transferable to the very multi-layered and complex world of advocating for religious freedom and, and human rights? Well, the first thing is this, is like when you go, this is about more about coaching or about what you take from the holy scriptures of any tradition, but particularly my own faith, which happens to be Christian. The first lesson is see the world as the other does. Walk in their shoes. It doesn't mean you agree with them. It doesn't mean that they're right. But if you're going to communicate, if you're going to engage, you've got to see the other person. That could be in the me coaching fifth graders whose attention span is, you know, 90 seconds on a good day. Or it could be an, somebody playing striker thinking about what it means to play defense. You have different worldviews within the context of the body. Okay, and then there's the, then there's how you engage the other team. I will not let my kids yell at refs, even if the refs are wrong. Sorry, that's not your that's not your job. That's my job. If if I, and I don't yell at the ref, I talk to them in a mature way. You shut up and you get back to your position. But then see the team. They're kids like you. Their parents are kids like you. Maybe they're excited. Maybe they got overzealous. Hey, we're going to shake hands after the game, and we're it's about the sport and about us as Americans and those kinds of things. So that's the biggest thing of all is understanding who the other is, walking in their shoes, being confident about what you do and believe and how you execute with excellence, but respecting them, not tolerating, but respecting them in terms of how you engage. And if you can do that, you'll have success anywhere in the world because you will have the capacity to listen. And when you listen, you actually find out about solutions that are applicable in that context that are already there instead of you trying to bring them. That's the American side of me speaking now, where sometimes we bring solutions to places that already have them. All they're asking is for us to walk alongside and uh, join them in the best of who they already are. So, Chris, can you give an example of where you, where you've seen that play out as you've been involved globally about where a solution was already latent within the context rather than people be- begging the Westerners to, to figure it out for them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's everywhere you go. Um, the The most... The two best examples for me are Vietnam and Uzbekistan. They were both countries on the religious, the State Department's religious freedom violations list. And they're the only two countries to come off the list. And um, I had the blessing of playing with my um, previous organization, the Institute for Global Engagement, and many others, uh, a significant even strategic role in getting that done. And how did it happen? Well, you it comes back to listening, walking in the shoes of the other, letting relationships reveal strategy. Hey, it's not about your plan. It's about letting that strategy get revealed. And then to answer your question specifically, let's go with Vietnam first. Um, I was walking around the American War Museum, which is how they call the Vietnam War in Hanoi. And I saw this quote from Ho Chi Minh, who is the founder of Vietnam and was you know public enemy number one in America during the 60s as a representative of communism, this godless communist. And he had a quote, and the quote was this, if I was a student, I would want to sit at the table with uh, 
a Confucian scholar, a Buddhist scholar, Karl Marx, and Jesus Christ. And he says, I would be their pupil. And I thought, who ever heard about that? And it doesn't matter what the context of him saying that was. It was that here's Ho Chi Minh that they recall Uncle Ho in Vietnam saying something about all perspectives at the table teaching you to be a better Vietnamese. And so every speech I ever made in Vietnam or since then at the Vietnamese embassy or consulates in America, I always start with that. I said, listen, I want to share with you something Uncle Ho said back in 1949. And if he can say it, I'm just trying to walk with you. I do it as a Christian, and I'm not here to proselytize you. I want you to come up with your own perspective. But what we're trying to do here is create the table. And the table is everybody gets a seat. And everybody gets a chance to say what they think. And we're not trying to impose. We're trying to propose as citizens of a country, as as global citizens walking together. And that always works. You know why? Because in every context, they've always experienced the Americans showing up as with a name, blame, and shame attitude of, hey, why don't you look like us? Why don't you look like Thomas Jefferson? Well, hey, guess what? Thomas Jefferson wasn't a perfect guy. Turns out he had some of his own issues uh, with marriage, with uh, philandering, with uh, terrible at finances, all kinds of things. Not a very good president, by the way. Fled Richmond when the British came, when he was the governor of Virginia. Not a very good example. But he did some things very well, and we should walk with people just as we take the whole of the Thomas Jefferson profile and biography and say, okay, warts and all, we're humans, we're going to do good things, and how do you walk together? That local, historical, cultural context is the, be- is the starting point, but it's got to be re- revealed and usually through a set of relationships that you're willing to listen to. That's powerful. Thank you so much, Chris. So uh, this last week, um, there's been some news in the sports world because the the Houston Rockets general manager tweeted support of protesters in Hong Kong. And and now the NBA is kind of scrambling to try to figure out what the what the right answer is. What what's what's your take on watching that unfold from your unique perspective? Well, it's, it's very, very unfortunate. One is the NBA, to its credit has has taken and many of its public leaders players and coaches have taken a public role in uh criticizing um the administration the president which is their right to do and working on issues of social justice which is their right to do okay all good but in Hong Kong, you have people who are singing Christian hymns, walking in the streets, singing Christian hymns, many not Christian, but that's been the unifying force for some reason, carrying the American flag and protesting uh, a law of extradition that says if they break the law, they can go to mainland China and be tried there where there is no rule of law, where you can be executed. And the NBA, which also has a training camp out in northwest China in Xinjiang, which is where all the Muslims are. And there's a we, an ethnic group called the Uyghurs, and most of them are Muslim. And there's a million of them that have been rounded up to be, quote, unquote, reeducated. And now the NBA is not standing with those folks because they're worried about the profit margins, because the NBA has a lot of deals and a lot of the players and coaches have a lot of contracts with China and China represents a, 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 a watching population of 500 million people. That's a lot of money. I get it. But guess what? You can't stand with Colin Kaepernick 
and then kneel to the Chinese Communist Party. That is absolutely wrong. It is intellectually inconsistent, and it sets a wrong example for our kids if we're trying to build character. Oh, we can critique our own fellow Americans, but a Chinese Communist Party, the Communist Party that has killed more people in the history of humanity than any other entity, more than Hitler, more than Stalin, and you're going to bow down to them because of a contract? No, that doesn't work. You got to be intellectually consistent and you've got to have a strong sense of justice in both contexts. Yeah, it's going to be complicated. Yeah, it sucks to be you. You might lose some money, but you're going to set an example for American kids and kids worldwide. The counterexample to this just yesterday came out in the Boston Globe. I'm blanking on his name, but the Boston Celtic Center, who is from Turkey. And he Cantor. wrote an op-ed. Yeah, what a good guy. And I'm a, I am from New England. I am a diehard Pats fan. I am a Red Sox fan. Celtics fan, Larry Bird, he writes an op-ed and says, look, it, I, I, I'm not going to let my voice be silenced. Well, there's no NBA contracts over there, but they're okay with that. So the NBA has got to get a grip on this because at some point they're going to lose money in the American market. And by the way, Nike is a part of this as well. Nike sponsored Colin and then Nike pulled, um, there's, there's a, there's a uh, logo or a brand over in China called Under Armour or Ar- something like that. And they refused to, uh, and, the, and the producer of that uh, also aligned himself with Hong Kong. And they pulled their support of that in the same way that Nike has pulled its, it's pulled its support of the Betsy Ross shoes because of, Colin says something in America. Hey, you guys, you guys got to get your act together. You got to be consistent here. And it's not about the almighty dollar. That America allowed you, created a context for you to make the almighty dollar, honor the values, critique everybody. Chris, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Ennis Cantor because I wanted to ask you about him as well. Uh, within the last 12 months, he actually refused to travel with an NBA formal function to London because he was concerned for his own personal safety and security. For people who don't understand how religious freedom in Turkey works, wh- why, why is he having to take such drastic measures? Well, Turkey is, in a nutshell, used to be the Ottoman Empire for centuries. Uh, a successor to the Roman Empire in some ways over many, many years. That becomes the country of Turkey in 1923. And just before that, as the Turks had their nationalism, they had the Armenian Genocide, which was a genocide against Christians, Turkish Muslims killing uh, Armenian, Assyrian, and Greek Christians. Total ethnic cleansing of Turkey in the uh, 1915 to 1925 time frame. They still can't talk about this. And since then, you've had a very uh, secular but Muslim uh, Turkey. A guy by the name of Erdogan comes to power in uh, 15 years ago or so, and he's from a Islamist party, which is to say he believes the Quran ought to influence public life, not in a way that Americans, many Americans believe the Bible ought to influence public life. Okay, that's okay. But over time, he's become more and more uh, militant and more and more authoritarian, more and more dictatorial. So Erdogan, who is now this uh, uh, dictator, he has jailed more journalists than any country in the world, more than China. That's saying something because he, he goes after anybody who threatens his control. It's still a democracy, but it's very rough. And that's why the center from the Baltic South Celtics is not going back because Erdogan is going to push back against anybody who speaks against him in the same way that the Chinese Communist Party is going to try to hurt you with your wallet or 
poison you like the Russians do uh, if you speak against them. Same dynamic, same context. So he is right to be afraid of returning home. He's right to fear for his family. And obviously, that is exactly wrong. That is why we have to stand up and hit people where it hurts in the pocketbook. And we need the NBA to stand up for the right values, because if we live our values, we'll take care of our interests. But they're, they're not doing that right now. And he's the only one that is our Boston Celtics center. What's his name again? Ennis Cantor. Ennis, yeah. yeah. So that's that's a great take, Chris. Thank you so much. So um, you and I met at Georgetown, I think close to a decade ago at the Common Word event that was happening back then. And I read in the news that just this last week, the Saudi Arabian uh, soccer team came and played a FIFA qualifying match in the West Bank against the Palestinian national team. And that for people who have been paying attention, that was kind of a big deal because most of the Arab League nations have been boycotting games that are happening um, in, in a place where, where Israel still has a, a a reach for security and influence. Why, why is that game significant? Well, it's, it's positive in that. I mean, there's a, that's a great question, Steve. Here's the short version. The geopolitical context is that Israel and Saudi Arabia are more and more unified against Iran. That's why Israel's letting Saudi come in. Uh, It's good for Saudi politics to look out for the Palestinians because they're both Muslim. Now, the sad part about this is that many Arab states refuse to let the Palestinian refugees, some of whom fled, have fled since 1948 when Israel was created to their countries, they won't let them become citizens. And so that's a constant like subtext to all this is there's Palestinians throughout the Middle East and the Arab countries won't let them become tech- permanent citizens. So it's it's a complicated thing. But the good news is, is that if the Palestinians are are seen as equal to other Arab citizens in the Middle East, and Israel is getting along with other Arab states, that's all moving in the right direction. The state of the two-state solution with Palestine and Israel, that's another conversation that is completely stalled right now that hopefully will be shaken loose by activities like sports that say, hey, we're all in this together. Let's, let's, let's uh, do the right thing. And in the case of Saudi and Israel, stand against Iran and, and their terrorist influence um, while recognizing that the vast majority of Iranians are very good people. We're talking about the Iranian government doing the terrorism. Uh, and, and, and the best way to do that is through sports, get people playing together on the field. Let's get Saudi and Palestine playing Israel. That's, you know, that's the next step. That's great, Chris. So I've got four kids at home. Uh, I've got a son that I watch Sports Center with on occasion. Is 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 there value in trying to take some of these broader conversations, like with the NBA in China, to to talk to our kids at age appropriate levels about what what really is happening in the world and and what's at stake? Well, I think you have to. I mean, it's just life, and the purpose of a school and a purpose of a parent is to educate. And the purpose of education is to help people be good citizens. And you got to engage the world as it is. And to engage the world as it is, you got to know who you are. What are your beliefs? What do your beliefs say about not just tolerating, but respecting the other, someone who doesn't vote, look, act, or pray like you do? And then how do you engage across deep, even irreconcilable theological differences to make a positive difference in the world? Uh, which means, again, if you want to take on global climate change, you want to take on terrorism, sex trafficking, homelessness, you're going to work with somebody who doesn't look act or vote or pray like you do. So you've got to figure this out. 
Chris says, Doors open because I had the courage to step up and say, this is not for me. Do you have a child who senses their time on a team or sport might be winding down? Is he or she struggling to let go? Are you? And does it help to consider that something positive, even incredible, is on the other side of that choice? Chris coaches his youth soccer team with three principles, one of which is see the whole, play as a body. Based on where your family is in your current life stage, what does it mean for you to see the whole and play as a body together? If you liked what you heard today, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you have a minute, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help other people find the show. You can find us on Facebook and at badsoccerdad.org. Thanks again to Dr. Chris Seipel for joining me today. Thanks also to our producer, Jessica Behrens, and our audio engineer, Dwight Beal. And thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next week.